Let me just pray. You can turn to Matthew 20, chapter 27 in the meantime. Let me just pray. Lord, as we come to hear from your word, will you speak to us? Your word is living. It may be black ink on semi-white paper, but it's more than just that. This is your message from God to man. This is your revelation. This is more than just history books and poetry and eyewitness accounts and prophecies. This is, this is something that is relevant now as, as much as then and always will be. And your word, you promise, doesn't return void. Lord, you promise that as your word is spoken out and expounded on, unwrapped, that it ha takes effect. Lord, this morning, will your word take effect? Every single one of us in this room, will you just penetrate deeply and just embed something in our hearts as we've already been referring to? Each one of us, may we not go away, none of us go away unchallenged, unprovoked, unchanged. Will you speak to us? Living God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Easter is coming up. And uh, Europe... Easter is coming up next Sunday, is Easter Sunday, and um, we just wanted to take a couple of Sundays out beforehand just to take a look at Jesus' journey towards the cross, towards the grave and beyond. Um, last week, John took us through Philippians chapter 2, that wonderful hymn where we see Jesus' journey. Jesus never began, eternal God descended to earth, descended to death on the cross, rose again and ascended to glory to receive the name that is above all names, Lord over everything. That's Jesus' journey. And John introduced that last week. Next week, Stephen will be speaking on the empty tomb, on the grave. That's the God who brings life out of death. We're going to hear more about that next Sunday. But in between, I just want to take a moment just to press pause on the cross. In fact, press pause on a moment on the cross. Because we want to give time to this, because Easter actually is the very heartbeat of, the, of Christianity. Easter is what it's all about. And in fact, in our British culture, we've probably got a bit topsy-turvy. We make more of Christmas. And while Christmas is a wonderful thing, celebrating eternal God stepping into a suit of skin to live amongst us and to rescue us, that's brilliant. But that's the point. He came to rescue us. Easter is about the rescue. Easter is what he came for. And we should actually be making more of Easter than we do of Christmas, shouldn't we? That's party time. Next Sunday should be a big party. Wear your party clothes next Sunday. Come along. Bring some pom-poms, I don't know, whatever you want. Easter should be a big thing for good reason because that's why he came and that's where he conquered over sin, over death and the devil forever. That's the very heartbeat of the Christian story. Fairy tales have great appeal, don't they? They've been told over the centuries. Our kids love them, we love them when we were growing up. You might still like them now. There's a reason why Disney keep remaking them and reimagining them for the current modern age, etc., etc. But there's great moments in them that are regular themes and patterns in fairy tales that make them resonate with us. There is someone who needs rescue. There is a great champion. There are moments of transformation that we love to see. There's darkness and there's light. There's extremes in beautiful good and ugly evil. And there's always, in the middle of these stories, there's this darkest moment when before the big amazing turnaround, the big gasp, it seems like everything's lost. There's this darkest moment there when Snow White is poisoned, when beauty is abandoned in the castle, doomed, isolated, on her own with beast. 
when Red Riding Hood discovers that Grandma is not Grandma. It's this darkest moment when it seems like everything's lost. The message of Easter is this, that Christianity is the fairy tale that really did happen. There's rescue, there's a great champion, there's transformation, there's dark and light. And there is, in the middle of that, the darkest moment when before the great big turnaround, it seems like everything is lost. Just to paraphrase, a friend of mine, Glenn Scrivener, um, he describes it like this. I'll try not to blind you. God is the ultimate source of life, light and love. And when he created us with free will to choose to follow him, we chose otherwise. And we decided to go our own way, which resulted in a relationship breakdown from the source of life, light and love. We were separated from that source, and that means we are lost in death, darkness and disconnection. And yet, while we were there, eternal God chose to step in to rescue us back. And Jesus, the eternal member of the triunity, he never began eternal God. He stepped in and he bridged that chasm at the cross between the ultimate source of life, light and love and us who are doomed and lost and unable to rescue ourselves in self-exile, in death, darkness and disconnection. And the fact is, as he did that, anyone who is willing to humble themselves, as we were talking about earlier, willing to humble themselves to accept that outstretched hand of eternal God and accept that invite that he's done the work for us, he will bring us home. He will bring us home, no longer doomed to death, darkness and disconnection, but instead scooped up into life, light and love forever. That's the amazing story of Easter. That is the good news of Jesus in less than a minute. That's what this fairy tale that came true is all about. But right there, in the middle of that story, is that darkest moment when it seems like everything is lost. And that's what I want to focus on, just that very moment when he's hanging on that cross, when he's experiencing, Jesus himself is experiencing darkness, death and disconnection. I want to focus on that for a moment because if Jesus died as the Bible and history tells us he did and if he died as a substitute, the spotless one in place of the sinful ones, which we believe he did, if that's the case, what was happening within the Godhead at that moment? That's what I want to look at. Because you see, we're humans so we see things on a superficial level quite often and if we only view his sufferings as physical torment, then we're missing the cosmic implications of his sacrifice, quite what he did. I mean, to say, for example, that Jesus really suffered for us. He really suffered. He, the flesh was ripped from his back till you could see his ribs. And the thorns were pressed into his head till it bled. And the nails were driven into his hands and into his feet. And the agony of asphyxiation as he hung there on the cross and didn't have the strength to get a gasp of breath. That's so painful. That's how much he loves us. Now to say that, while totally valid, and quite an awful realisation the more you think about it, I still believe it's missing the utter depth of both his and the Father's pain in that moment. The physical is barely scratching the surface. 
There's always a lot to chew on about the cross. When it comes to the cross, there's lots of things to look at. And we should dig, dig into the fact that it's where... Uh, it's about satisfying God's perfect justice. It's about forgiveness. It's about f- defeating the sin and death and the devil and so on. And those are good things. And we need to focus on them. We need to understand them. But what can be missed is the full depth of Christ's agony. Oh, those nails. They must have really hurt him. Well, yeah. But that's barely scratching the surface of what he went through for you and me. And understanding this, which we're going to do in a moment, is just as much as we can. It might feel a bit dark and a bit deep and a bit gloomy but it needs to be it needs to be we need to feel this in our guts this morning as we understand this more it reveals even more of the true heart of God and it reveals even more of the degree of his love and the immensity of his rescue plan so I want to look at three things can we have the slide up please Luke we'll look at three things I made it all begin with C to make it easier for you we we'll look at the cry there's a moment when he cries out on the cross. We're going to look at the cry. And then we're going to look at the crisis. What's causing that cry? But then we're going to look at the consequence of that crisis. And then there is another C. We're going to finish with communion as well. But let's just look at the cry first of all. Just to clarify this moment in question. Matthew chapter 27. This, this moment is referred to by commentators, by theologians, as Christ's dereliction. It's about his state of being abandoned. That moment when he's abandoned on the cross. And you can find it in Matthew 27. It's also repeated in Mark 15, but we're going to look at the Matthew 27 one. But just to put it in context, this moment is after Jesus has been arrested and put on trial and tortured and he's sent, sentenced to death and he's sent to the place where he's going to be crucified and he's, he's hung on this wooden cross with the nails through his hands, nails through his feet. He's, he's been pierced on this cross and he's been crucified with robbers. He's been crucified with the lowest of the low. He's been counted with the lowest of the low. There's robbers either side and people around him, they've, they've, been dividing, they've taken Jesus' clothes away from him and they divided them amongst them. They're going to take them home and wear them. Sell them on eBay, whatever they want to do. But then there's passers-by walking past and they're deriding Jesus. They're wagging their heads at him, is the word that's used. The people just looking at him, just wagging their heads. I think it's a pitiful sight. And then even the religious leaders, they come and they mock him. He's the religious leaders who are supposed to be serving and worshipping God. They are mocking Jesus on the cross. He's reviled by the robbers who were crucified next to him. And if that wasn't enough, then this happens. Verse 45 from Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, the way they did the, their clocks at the time, this is midday till 3 p.m. is what he's talking about. Now from the sixth hour, from midday, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. It seems like quite a confusing statement in some ways. It's confused many over the centuries and confused people just then. They thought he was calling out to Elijah. But what he's actually doing is quoting King David's words from Psalm chapter 22 which was written a thousand years beforehand. 
And it's only in hindsight, the wonder of hindsight, we look back and we recognise what David wrote was actually a prophecy of the Messiah dying for us. There are features that I've already mentioned in the Gospel account of what happens just before this moment. You look in Psalm 22, they're there, written a thousand years before. It says they wag their heads at him. They're wagging their heads. We can see in Matthew chapter 27, it says they pierced his hands and feet. We see that, it's already happened. They said they divide my garments. We've seen they've already done that. What David wrote, in some ways probably unbeknownst to him at the time, a thousand years prior, he's describing the future Messiah's death. But Jesus is quoting directly from this. Why is he quoting from this psalm? Is he just going, just a little clue for you treasure seekers? If you dig out Psalm 22, you'll find out it was a prophecy. I don't think that was bothering him at the time. Why is he quoting this quote? Why is he saying, why have you forsaken me? Why is he asking this question? Because surely he knew what was coming. It's not a surprise to him. He told his followers he would die and that he would rise again. He knew the prophecies that predicted the same. He knew it was coming. And in being God, he had the same mission in mind as the Father. He knew why he'd come here in the first place, to die for us. None of this was a surprise to him. So if he knew exactly what was happening, why did he question such a thing aloud? Some commentators, they surmise that maybe Jesus was just saying it just to express that he could sympathise with them. Now, oh, I know what it likes to be to suffer. So if I say this, you'll know I can relate to being a human. I'm sorry, but Jesus was not a man of fakery. If he'd said something, he meant it. He wasn't putting on a mask, putting on a face. So I don't think it's that. What I suggest is that perhaps it's to teach us something far, far more fundamental, that his pain is far deeper than the flesh. Why have you forsaken me? Why am I abandoned? He's expressing the state he's actually in at the moment. Do you want to just turn to Isaiah chapter 53? You find it shortly after Psalms. It's roughly in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophet from about 700 years before Jesus. And again, this is another prophecy that he writes that we look back with the wonder of hindsight and go, aha, this is describing what happens to Jesus in about AD 30. I'm going to start from verse 4. I'm going to skip through some of the acts that man do to Jesus just for the sake of what I'm talking about today. I want to look at, just look at what lay between Jesus and the Father in this moment. And it tells us that Jesus, in verse 4, Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says... While he was on the cross, he bore our griefs. Eternal, perfect God, the ultimate source of life, light and love, is in this moment bearing our griefs. It also says he's carrying our sorrows. He's not pretending to. He's not carrying them in a bag. They're on his shoulders. You know, they, he's carrying our sorrows. It continues in the same verse. It says, he's stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Smitten by God and afflicted. You go on to verse 5. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's going through this for you and for me. Same verse. He was crushed for our iniquities. Imagine the eternal God being crushed. He did this voluntarily. Same verse. He was chastised. He's punished to bring us peace. He's being punished on my behalf He's being punished on your behalf so we can know peace with God. Verse 6, 
the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Eternal God, the ultimate source of life, light and love, is in death, darkness and disconnection, bearing our dirt. And then verse 8, just says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There's that moment of abandonment that eternal God went through for you and me. And Jesus, we have to get this, Jesus bearing our dirt has to upset the dynamic of a perfect Godhead. It can't not. Do you see that? And so it must penetrate far deeper than the physical realm. Bearing our judgment before the most terrifyingly powerful and perfect judge ever to exist. Jesus being smitten, oppressed, abandoned in shame. Jesus' cry was expressing the actual crisis he's going through at that moment. So I am being forsaken. I am being abandoned for humanity. And I can't handle it. He's crying out in desperation. Let's look at that crisis. Let's have the um, image up, please, Luke. Thank you. Let's take a look at this artwork for a moment. It's by an American artist called Andre Serrano. It's made in 1987. It's 30 years old now. First glance, it's got an ethereal beauty to it. It's got this kind of majestic glow to it. It's mysterious, but it's, it is still melancholic. It's quite sad, isn't it? It's sad but beautiful. It's a strange kind of bittersweet mix. It's quite nice to gaze upon, but you get some of the melancholy within that moment. But there's actually more to it. If you're easily offended by words, then for now, perhaps you need to be. This artwork is actually called Piss Christ. P-I-S-S, Piss Christ. It's a plastic crucifix suspended in a tank of the artist's own urine. And while it outraged many across the world, and it still does, it's, it's, it's displayed as a, as a large photograph, about this big. It goes around galleries around the world, and when it is, it often gets smashed, it gets defaced, it gets, yeah, there's lots of outcries about it, even today sometimes. It has outraged many across the world, and its original intention was to cry out against the commercialization of Christianity and pop culture, popular culture. That was why he did it initially. I actually really like it, and I like the title, and I, fa I like the fact it's actual urine. Please listen, because I believe it helps us realize what was happening on the cross. Here is a replica of Jesus suspended in urine. When Jesus, in that moment on the cross, the never-began, all-perfect Son of God, he was being suspended in our very filth. Can you feel that? Hurts, doesn't it? Perfect God. Never, ever born sin before. Never will again. And in that moment, he's suspended, hanging in your and my filth. Everything you've done, everything you will do, everything you've ever wanted to do that's wrong, that is not perfect, that filth, it's called sin. And he's hanging in it for you and for me. He's the perfect God-man interceding in sacrifice on our behalf. And the more we recognise the weight of what that means, the more we have to contemplate the Godhead's very relationship dynamic as it was occurring. 
1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Just contemplate that for a moment. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's Jesus. The obscenity of the artwork's title, Piss Christ, sums up what Jesus became. He became an obscenity for you and for me. Just to look at it another way. I know last time I spoke, I spoke about our loopy dogs. We always seem to end up raising dogs that are a bit loopy. But I think every, most dogs seem to do this. Who's, any dog owners have been or are in the house? Did they like rolling in fox poo? What the heck is that all about? It is. That dog loves to roll around in fox poo. Oh, and she comes in the house and the house just fills up with this aroma of just like... I have to... Jenny's like, you can barf her. <laughs> but it's just like, oh, it just makes me heave. And I've dealt with body fluids in my time in the back of ambulances. I've had to deal with all sorts. I'm fine with that. A dog with fox poo, I just... Oof, I just... Oh. And just the thought of getting a bit of it on my hand, just like, hey! <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That is God's reaction to sin. That is God's reaction to sin. It's like, I can't touch. Filth. Even the slightest sin. Perfect God goes, whoa, I can't. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says all our righteous deeds, even our seemingly good deeds we're trying to do for good reason, they're still motivated by something else because of who we are. Even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags depending on what, what translation you're reading. And that actual original language, polluted garment or filthy rags, is referring to bloody sanitary towels. That's what it's referring to. Something that we deal with in private and dispose of discreetly. Even our righteous deeds are like that to God because he is so perfect. And it was in that foulness that Jesus hung. For Jesus to carry our sin and for Father to be so holy, living in such unapproachable light that even angels have to shield themselves. Then we can see that Father cannot look on dispassionately. He can't nod sagely. He goes, uh-huh, yep, going all according to plan. Well done. He can't. In that moment, Father, Son, and by implication, Holy Spirit as well, by nature, they're experiencing the most ghastly, disturbing, emotional horror ever. And if he could, if he was physical like us, Father would be retching. He'd be gagging, looking at his son, what he's hanging in. I'm not over-egging this for sake of drama. The drama is there in Jesus' desperate cry. And as Jesus died, the Bible says that physical darkness, it's recorded in history, the physical darkness came over the land. Why? Because spiritual darkness was on him. And he was experiencing disconnect between him and the Father. He didn't stop being God. He did not stop being God. And Father did not stop loving him. But there was such a massive disturbance momentarily in that eternal loving relationship for the first and last time 
there's this torment of perfect God bearing our filth. means that while Jesus bore our cost, Father was swallowing the cost as well. And here's a jarring in that relationship that had never occurred before, never would again, and is where the true pain and suffering of the cross can be found. But there's a reason why they did it. Just go back to the slide, please, Luke. There's, there's the consequence. It wasn't for nothing. He didn't stay there. Some 30-odd hours later, he rose again from that tomb in utter victory. The moment he died, he was in paradise with Father. 30 hours later, he rises out of that empty tomb, back in his human body that is now transformed, is now different, can walk through doors. And he's like, I'm alive. I'm victorious. I did it for a reason, and that reason is you. When we take a closer look at Jesus' cry, we see that crisis for the Trinity that they're experiencing at the time. And it's so the consequences that we can experience breakthrough, release, and freedom. God, the ultimate source of life, light, and love, voluntarily experienced death, darkness, and disconnection. So we can have life, light, and love forever. Amen. Amen. To grasp more fully what occurred between the Godhead while Jesus breathed his final breath is to recognize the depth of God's love for me and for you. It helps us realize the breadth of his love for humanity and the cosmos, which he'll resurrect one day in a whole new way. And it helps us grasp the length of how far God would go to adopt fallen humans as his own children. What a remarkable, unique, loving God. And this is available for you right now, if not already. If you, if you don't know God as your Father who has rescued you, today can be the day. Today can be the day. Don't walk away from here thinking, that's a nice story. Think about it. Just check your heart and go, am I really perfect? Is there something that needs reckoning with? Before a holy God, how do I stand? Because there's nothing you can do to make up for that. But he did. He stooped from heaven into a broken world and into broken lives to bring you home. Do you want to receive that? If not, you've got to have a very good reason why not. Let's go back to that picture again. We'll leave that up. Thank you, Luke. He didn't stay there, but we mustn't lose the immensity of what he did while he was there. So I just think it'd be good just to share, spend some time in communion. Jesus broke the bread, shared the cup of wine with his disciples in the Last Supper just before his arrest. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep doing it. Do not forget. Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 11, keep doing this until he comes again. He's alive, but keep doing this. Why? Because I can get dismissive about yeah he died on the cross for me hooray sometimes I just need to recalibrate I just need to reset that's what communion's for in the busyness of life it makes us take pause and go whoa so don't don't do this flippantly either as you share in the bread in the moment as you share the wine as we do this together but we do it together with him I'm gonna, we're just going to play some music in the background we're going to keep this picture up on the screen just when you're ready if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, just 